Greetings, listeners and co-hosts. This is the Paleo-Protestant podcast coming uh, late July, two days before July 28th, which is the anniversary or the birthday of Jay Gress and Machen, the subject of today's um, conversation. Uh, and this is a little bit self-interested since my dissertation and first book was on uh, Jay Gress and Machen. And um, I'm, I'm, I've suggested this is a topic not so much out of self-interest, but sort of to take the temperature of other communions with regard to this conservative Presbyterian Jay Gresimation, who I'll say a little bit more about. Um, but we're here as usual with Corey Moss, who is in the history department at Hillsdale uh, and and a, a pastor in the LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and Miles Smith, who's also in the history department and, and a um, parishioner at Holy Trinity Hillsdale, Michigan, and may be headed for some official uh, title. Has it happened yet? Or are you still? I'm a, I'm a vestryman. Okay, vestryman. So, Jay Gresson Machen, born in 1881, died in 1937. <clears throat> um, New Testament scholar at Princeton, uh, comes from a pretty elite background, a, a wealthy, a well-to-do Baltimore family, wealthy more from inheritance on his mother's side, but his father was a prominent attorney um, in Baltimore. And um, he became a chief figure in the so-called fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s, although I've tried to argue that the Presbyterian controversy, one side of the so-called fundamentalist controversy, was in many ways distinct from the fundamentalist controversy, which was sort of associated a lot with the Scopes trial also another prominent Presbyterian involved in that trial, uh, Clar um, not Clarence Darrow, William Jennings Bryan, the chief prosecutor. And actually, Bryan asked Machen to testify at in Dayton, and Machen got out of it, sort of said he had family obligations, but I think he knew uh, what might have been coming with the circus atmosphere down there. Um, but Machen did write a piece for the New York Times um, in 1925, during the Scopes trial, the editors there asked someone to write a column. These are big, whole-page articles in the Times, what evolution stands for now, and they gave to Machen the topic, what fundamentalism stands for now. And Machen didn't bring up evolution or Darwinism in it. He was much more about the kind of conservative Protestantism that he was defending, but the way he came on the the radar, and and this is the reason for the the this uh, this episode uh, in 2023, he came onto the radar of editors at the New York Times because of his book from 1923, 100 years ago, Christianity and Liberalism. That was actually his second book. His first book was a study of of the Apostle Paul as a New Testament scholar. He was writing about Paul, but he wrote this book in response to some developments in the Presbyterian Church, indicating a liberal uh, influence in the church. And then things proceed from there, and Machen becomes a prominent conservative, a voice that editors turn to when they want someone to speak on the conservative uh, view of things. Machen is, is involved in Presbyterian struggles throughout the 20s, 
leads to the founding of Westminster Seminary in 1929 because of theological administrative controversies there. And then he's also one more phase of controversy in the 1930s over, over foreign missions and liberalism on, on the mission field. And that occupies the last five years of his life. He's eventually tried by the Presbyterian Church uh, for violating his ordination vows, among other things, and convicted of that. And he appeals, the appeals upheld at the General Assembly in 1936, which leads to the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And then six months later, Majin dies um, of pneumonia in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, of all places. Um, so there's really very little record of what he might have done once the, all the controversy was over. But I've um, I've been writing a lot this year about the book um, because of the anniversary. Uh, I've been on two podcasts, one with uh, some Lutherans. I'll link to these podcasts. Not, um, I wasn't on this one with the Lutherans, but they devoted two episodes to me. And I was really quite surprised by that. And then I was on an, another podcast with some Baptists. So I was. I thought that if Baptists and Lutherans can pay attention to Machen, so so can we. Um, the, the the windows open for this, but I've also have to say I've been really surprised by this. Christian liberalism is a probably Machen's most widely read book. It's a very good book. I still think it's a great read. I didn't encounter the book, even though I went to Westminster Seminary. I didn't encounter the book until I went to Harvard Divinity School when I took a course in American religious history my first semester there with William R. Hutchison, and he devoted a fair amount of his, well, one week of his class to fundamentalism, but a big part of it to Machen. He assigned the book Christian Liberalism. I had just graduated from Westminster, and I said, holy smokes, <laughs> wait, where did this guy come from? Um, and I went to his school and and then sort of from there, I got interested in old Princeton theology and people said, you really should write your dissertation on Machen. So that's how all that, all that happened. But Machen's big deal for me. He's a big deal in some ways, in many respects in the OPC, although I've actually <clears throat> poking around at materials, there does seem to be a little bit of a gap of interest in Machen within the OPC. Um but I, overall, I've I've been sort of surprised by these developments this year because I don't know if people think that there is a kind of liberalism that's taking over the churches. I mean, I it, is evangelicalism going liberal? I mean, you could argue it's going progressive, but it's not necessarily going liberal. So I just I don't know about that. So I turn to my Anglican and Lutheran friends to see where Machen registers in the minds of Anglicans and Lutherans, if at all. And if, and you don't have to make it up if he doesn't, that's, that's fine. Um, but I, but I, it is curious, curious to think about the degree to which Machen is still a presence in the life of American Protestants. So maybe, maybe I'll go first. Um, and Daryl, maybe maybe we wanted to talk too, like how much, like each of us individually encountered Machen. Sure, that's either way. You can go. Yeah. You can so do I, representative or individually. 
So, I mean, Anglicans definitely know who Gresham Mason is because he's kind of the progenitor of, I think, modern conservative Protestantism, right? Like, if you're a conservative Protestant in 2023, you probably have some idea of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, even if it didn't particularly touch the communion you're in, um, because it touched the commun that what we think of as broad evangelicalism. I think most people, <clears throat> if you have any sort of education about it, they know Christianity and liberalism. Um, so whether they know Machen himself or not, like the actual figure Machen is, is sort of a different question, but they know the book Christianity and Liberalism, and they know there's this guy who was a Presbyterian named J. Gresham Machen who wrote it. Um, so let me just pause right there yeah. before I forget it, Miles. I'm sorry, but don't lose your thought, please. Yeah. I also just recorded a, a podcast with Bart Gingrich, yeah. who is a rector I, I don't know yeah. the exact title at a church in richmond in the reformed episcopal church which is now a part of the acna and he we, we talked about some of that in the podcast how that happened but anyway so there are people like bart who are aware of this so yeah and just, i think the, RE, the rec actually is is among anglican um province among <clears throat> jurisdictions the rec probably has the most cross-pollinization um, with Mason because the REC was around for the fundamentalist right. controversy. And so the successors to Bishop Cummins, they definitely knew who mm -hmm. um, Mason himself among Anglicans. I, uh, there's a lot of people who read, uh, there is this, you know, wonderful biography of him by this uh, DG Hart guy. <laughs> um, so throwaway biography, um, which is the only biography of Mason I've read. Um, but uh, Mason, uh, himself i think his biographical details are worth visiting for any anglican because his grandfather was was an episcopalian right and a lot of his formation um as i think catherine van drunen has written a little short um piece on sort of at the, the opc's magazine that i read years ago um sort of on mason's sort of heritage um and mason his family they were more just like conservative protestants whether that was Presbyterian or Episcopalian, they kind of moved between the communions, just kind of depending on which church was more serious. And so his grandparents were Episcopalians in Virginia. Um, and under went during the time when John Johns was bishop. Yeah. And John Johns, of course, was a Princetonian who was Charles Hodge's roommate. And so the DNA of, of Machen's sort of family religiosity was kind of this, you know, very Protestant even almost quote, quote unquote confessional expression of the Episcopal church. Um, and so I think that Machen's intellectual DNA is worth visiting for any Anglican, um, especially because so many Anglicans uh, like myself, right, grew up Presbyterians. Um, and that's maybe a good place for me to start with my own relationship with Machen, which is, uh, you know, there's, th th there's these prayers that parents might offer for their children when they baptize their babies. I pray that it would never be a moment where they don't, where my kid doesn't know Jesus. Well, I think for me, it was like there was never a moment I didn't know who Gresham Mason was. Huh. Um, and so he was ubiquitous, I think, in, in the PCA, not because of our churchmanship, but because I think the PCA's roots um, in the Southern Church had a lot more, quote unquote, evangelical roots. And I think that was much more downstream from the fundamentalist modernist controversy, even in some ways than the OPC, which had right. a Dutch DNA. Um, 
And so I think there was always this perception that even though Mason was sort of a founding father of the OPC, he was really ours um, because right. he was a Southerner and he was from he was <clears throat> from Baltimore, but he was more or less culturally a Southerner. Um, and so uh, you knew Machen because you knew Christianity and liberalism, and he was um, a guy who really influenced the Southern Presbyterian Church. Um, my own story is I knew who Machen was because uh, of his friendship with Charlie Woodbridge. Um, mm-hmm. and Charles Woodbridge um, was my grandfather's pastor. In fact, he was my grandfather's pastor when my grandfather was was confirmed in the Presbyterian Church. And so Machen was the guy who sort of gave Woodbridge the strength to sort of break with with the main line. And I should I should say if you that Woodbridge was one of the first missionaries for, for, with the independent board of yeah. Presbyterian Foreign Missions that Machen founded to protest liberalism in the in the Presbyterian Church's board of missions, and that renegade board is what got him led to the trial. But Woodbridge was one of those guys who was part of that that missions movement. So yeah. Yeah, so he was my my great uncle is a bit younger than my grandfather. So Charles Woodbridge baptized my great uncle, and so I think just knowing that mm. was the guy who had sort of given Woodbridge not not that Woodbridge wasn't courageous, but it definitely was helpful for all of these guys like Charles Woodbridge to to go ahead and plant their flag, because Masham was what well, he was the you know as the kids say he was the OG um, <laughs> who who broke with the main line. And he did it in a way that was was respectable. I mean, Mason was hard to ignore because he was this intellectual. Um, and and so he kind of provided the nerd weaving of fundamentalism um, to people who might have been uncomfortable with someone like Billy Sunday. Um, and so I think Mason's imprint in, in my own life is just hard to hard to ignore. He's he's always been there. Um, and there's nothing I can find about him that I dislike. He's just this really serious guy who writes this transcendent book that's being re- reissued, right? There's a hundredth anniversary. Right. And so if you can write a book that lasts a hundred years, um, you've done, you've done something right. So we turn to the Lutherans who are, we've said many times before in these discussions that Lutherans are, are outside the mainstream of Anglo-American or British uh, descendants of British Protestantism, and and this might be an, one more indication of ways in which that what Miles was saying, sort of easy traffic between the Episcopalians and Presbyterians, evangelicals in the South in the in the middle Mid Atlantic um, doesn't work as well for Lutherans. But I don't want to lead you or or. Um, Take away your your answer, Corey. Yeah, no, no I, I think I think you're right that this might be another example. Um, so M- Machen first came on my radar uh, while I was an undergraduate at at one of our Lutheran colleges, um, but but it wasn't Christianity and liberalism. Um, it it was his Greek grammar. Um, that's 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 what was still being used to teach uh, Koine Greek to the pre-seminary students at Concordia in River Forest, Illinois. I, I wasn't taking Greek at the time. There was there was no way in the world I was going to get drafted into the ministerium of the Lutheran Church. Um, but but a bunch of my classmates were were doing it, and and they were they were still using the Machen grammar. So I just that that's how he first came on my radar. I just I just knew him as some 
some guy who wrote a book to teach people that wanted to learn Greek how to read Greek. Um, then probably when, when I did get drafted and went off to, to the seminary, um, I'm sure that he came up in uh, you know, history of American Christianity. I took a, I took a course on that, um, but but nothing really stuck. To, uh, we we didn't read anything by him. So I I think it was not until um, maybe my first year of teaching at another of our Concordias. Um, one of my colleagues was Rod Rosenblatt, who um, palled around with the White Horse Inn guys um, and had a number of good friends at Westminster South, Westminster down in, uh, was it Escondido, California? Yes, yeah. Um, so so Rod Rosenblatt was a big fan of Machen. And, um, and, and so that's when I first read Christianity and Liberalism and was, yeah, it was enormously impressed by it. And very quickly made it um, a, a staple of my you know, history of Christianity survey when we got to the 20th century and talked about fundamentalism and modernism. Um, and and maybe I, I might be misremembering here, but uh, also while I was teaching at Concordia, we we developed a core curriculum, and the 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 course in theology was a you know an introduction to Christian theology. And we put together a small uh, primary source reader for oh. that. Just kind of selective episodes um, and, and debates in the history of Christianity. And I want to say that we did include um, Machen in that, um, some some excerpts from the book, or, or maybe from the, the article that, that came out before the book. Um, oh. So that's that's kind of my history with with Machen. Um, but but as far as whether or not that's representative or, or what is the broader Lutheran engagement with Machen, I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can say this, that, that in a lot of obvious ways, uh, the, the LCMS controversies in the early 1970s, the, the so-called battle for the Bible uh, culminating in, in Seminex and the walkout of uh, the, the more liberal contingent of the faculty at our St. Louis Seminary, a lot of parallels there with the earlier fundamentalist modernist controversy. And so I would like to assume that Lutherans at that time were kind of reading Machen and, and nodding their heads and, and saying that, that yeah, this, this, this liberalism that has crept into Lutheranism is, is in fact not simply a different kind of Lutheranism. It, it is a different religion, um, the, the way Machen talks about uh, liberal Christianity. Um, one thing that surprised me um, and I did not know this until uh, I think relatively recently, in the last decade or so. Um, in 1935, Machen wrote uh, something for a Presbyterian magazine, the Presbyterian Guardian, I believe, um, on on the ordination vows. And he's got an aside in that essay in which he he gives thanks to the Missouri Synod and her clergy for constantly encouraging him during his own uh, strife at, at Princeton. Um, and so that, that actually kind of surprised me that, that, that in the 1920s, uh, confessional Lutherans who are just coming out of uh, a largely 
German only uh, lifestyle uh, at the seminaries mm -hmm. in the parishes um, are, are actually sort of not only paying attention and aware of what's going on in Presbyterian circles, but we're actually reaching out to in, encourage this guy that obviously they have some real theological differences with, but they recognize him as, as somebody who is on the right side of, of that controversy. So there, there are two ways to explain that. Um, one is Christian liberalism that I wrote, I wrote about this for the Acton Institute. I'm not sure it's going up sometime this month. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's just going to be online or in their magazine as well. But um, the introduction to Christian liberalism, Machen has all this political, not all, but has a fair amount of political material. Partly he's trying to write for a wider audience, for people who don't really care about what's happening in the churches. And he talks about the, the way in which um, government is taking over more and more areas of life, including education. Um, he was a libertarian. He was a Southern Democrat. Um, so he was he was anti big government before conservatives really woke up to that. Maybe you could argue. And he has long, lengthy footnotes in the introduction about uh, language laws in various states that were uh, requiring English only education. Mm -hmm. And and I could imagine Lutherans reading that and saying, "Hey, this guy." is channeling he's talking about especially nebraska at one point um so i could imagine him making a connection with lutheran audiences that way but then in 1925 he writes kind of a follow-up book uh what is faith so in in christian liberalism he was trying to prove that um Christ liberalism was not christian in what is faith? He's trying to prove that Christianity, excuse me, liberalism wasn't really intellectual, that it so emphasized the sentimental psychological aspects of faith that it really wasn't engaging with the mind as much. But there's a fairly lengthy section in that book about the importance of creeds. And he uses the example of Missouri Synod, I'm pretty sure, at least Lutherans, and the kind of catechetical tradition that they have, and also the nature of their ordination vows. So I don't know if he heard about that from correspondents who wrote to him after the first book saying, you know, this is what we do. Maybe they, maybe they read the book because there is material in Christian liberalism about subscription, the importance of creeds as well, but he goes out of his way in what is faith to mention Lutherans in very positive ways for their attachment to their, their confessional tradition. Hmm. Um, so that, there's another reason. But, and by the way, when you said different religion listeners hearing that might be thinking, um, what the heck, heck? This guy <laughs> was arguing that liberal Christianity was a different religion altogether. And as inflammatory as that might sound, it was actually a fairly simple point, which is that he he credits liberalism or liberals with trying to save Christianity for the modern world. And he recognizes that a lot of modern thought just doesn't make sense of the supernatural, miraculous nature of Christianity, especially the events surrounding Christ's life, death, resurrection, and birth. 
Machen wrote a book about the virgin birth, by the way. Um, but so he says, though, again, it's not merely that supernaturalism is important to Christianity, but he also makes the case that supernaturalism is the only remedy you can have for something as severe as human sinfulness. That it, you need a divine inter intervention into human affairs on the order of what Christ did by becoming a man and by dying on the cross and rising, living a sinful life, sinless life, sorry, and rising again, etc. That's the only remedy for sin. So he was trying to take seriously that the sinfulness of human existence and and the only remedy for it that's why he wanted to emphasize the supernatural and that's why he said liberalism was a different religion because what they did was okay let's get rid of the supernatural stuff and hold on to the kind of the ethical teaching of jesus the inspiration of jesus some of the good moral teaching from the old testament etc that'll be enough to save christianity for the modern world and machen said well what you've left what you're left with is a different religion so i mean that's how he he gets there and, and it 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 could sound fundamentalist if you just put it on a bumper sticker but it, it his his more elaborate point is um i think profound actually I, yeah I mean, no and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because i i'm just gonna take a wild guess that the kind of people who are listening to this podcast you know being confessional protestants when they hear the word, you know, liberal Christianity, they they probably think like I often do, you know, that that the liberals in in my circles are the 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 guys who wear suits when they're preaching rather than clerical vestments, or you know, the 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 liberals in broader American Christianity, you know, are are the ones who you know in advertise the you know the, the recycling bins all around the church um and that's yeah that's not what machen is talking about machen is talking about those who are you know under the guise of some established christian denomination you know actually denying you know, the, the biblical account of miracles uh, the virgin birth uh, a kind of uh, substitutionary atonement um and so yeah this is this is a different kind of liberalism than, than the kind of liberalism that, that some of us might grouse about today. Far, far more insidious. And following up on that, I mean, one of the, the, the arguments I've made repeatedly over the years, but, and what, what I would say, why Machen isn't a fundamentalist, because the fundamentalists were also emphasizing the supernatural character of Christianity, but the two big doctrines Four fundamentalists were one creation, which leads to the the Scopes trial. Um, the other one is the re return of Christ, and there was a lot of millennialism that was prominent in um, fundamentalist circles. Machen actually calls some of that uh, chiliasm or chiliasm. I'm not sure how you, how you pr pronounce it directly uh, in, in Christian liberalism. My in my copy, I've used it so many times. It's page forty nine. He calls it <laughs> he calls it kind of bizarre. This this uh, emphasis on uh, Christ's return, thinking about it in the ways that that millennialists did. So, what do you mean, like, like dispensationalists? Yeah, although pre millennialists primarily. I mean, I don't know if they actually called themselves dispensationalists yet. So you have fundamentalists concerned about the bookends of human 
um, existence, origins of human beings in, in Genesis, and then the, the end of human life on earth before the return of Christ, you know, but that period, those two bookends they're worried about. And Machen was in effect saying, no, 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 this Christ is really important. And the supernatural stuff surrounding Christ is really important, which is another reason why I think he didn't testify at the Scopes trial, because it just wasn't, um, <clears throat> creation wasn't as big a deal to him as, say, the virgin birth of Christ was, and the nature of this God-man and what the God-man could do. Um, and uh, so, but, 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 so do you guys have any thought as historians and as as um observant protestants christians um does 1920s and the fundamentalist controversy or the presbyterian controversy however you want to call it whatever you want to call it does it seem dated and i mean and I and I think that's part of the reason, perhaps, why Machen wasn't as prominent in Orthodox Presbyterian history. He's always there as kind of the founding. And I guess I've kind of thought about this. Okay, so what would have happened had, um, you know, somebody like Jefferson and Madison and Adams lived even to 1850 or so, and not merely until the 1820s. Um, so you could identify the founding moment with this guy, but for life after the founding, Machen's just not around, so he's not as much as a, a part of the story, um, which is another way of saying that he may have been dated by the particular circumstances of his time. But from what you were saying, Corey, especially about using excerpts from the book or other parts of Machen's writing for your... <clears throat> Uh, courses or classes at Concordia, maybe not. I mean, there's this timeless quality to theology, obviously. Yeah, uh, well, and 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 to the to the point that he's making, and and I and this is one of the things that I really like about the the, the introduction, and 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 it reminds me of the introduction, for example, to to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, um, when when Machen says, you know, we we have to start with the definitions. So when, when I talk about Christianity, I'm just going to talk about Christianity in, in its historical definition. Um, and the fact of the matter is that that Christianity from the beginning is defined by certain beliefs, which is to say certain doctrines. It, it's not merely you know, a way of life or a way of behaving. Um, and he says, you, you, you don't even have to you don't have to be a Christian to believe that, but you, you just read the documents and you understand that whether these beliefs are true or not, that the church has always understood Christianity to revolve around certain beliefs. Um, and, and I think that this is, I mean, this is a perennial temptation to, to downplay doctrine as the, the kind of stuff that pointy heads who go through seminary might have to learn but for most of us, Christianity is just about, you know, going to church and being nice. Right. 
Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's advertised quite so loudly as it might have been by someone like Harry Emerson Fosdick or from such prominent platforms as, as he had in, in the, the, the sort of liberal era of Christianity in the early 20th century. But, but to be sure, it's, it's a perennial temptation to think about Christianity that way. Right. Or, and also to think of, of your faith as being something that moves you so that your faith is excited. It, it carries a certain kind of emotional um, output. And if you don't have the emotions, then you're maybe not as, as um, pious or faithful as you should be. And then, you know, there's another side of your belief in God is so strong that God does speak to you in certain ways. And so, and that can give you guidance for life, raises all sorts of questions about the sufficiency of scripture and, and whatnot. But the importance of doctrine really is something that I, I mean, I see a strong connection there between the Reformed churches and, and Lutheranism in, in that regard, even though there would be differences on what those doctrines are, but. But, yeah, but, and that's and and yeah, and you're right. And the, the the way that he he goes after the Pietists, um, you know, in, in a way that a Lutheran can read and say, "Oh, yeah, that, that's exactly right." <laughs> but since doctrine, if I if this is this may be unfair, Miles, uh, but I should probably ask. But it strikes me that doctrine is not as important to Anglicans or Episcopalians. I mean, as yeah, so I Unders, think, underscore as, and so does I that think, perhaps mean that Machen doesn't have as much? Well, I think, uh, I think I think the way I would frame it is this way: I think Anglicans are much more willing to be honest about the doctrinal status of their communion than Lutherans or Presbyterians sometimes, because like you will have I've heard Presbyterians say this: the guy, like a guy, could be a practical PCUSer in the PCA. And the guy, and you would have some people say, we don't have any theological liberals in the PCA. And I don't know if the same thing would happen in the LCMS. And I think Anglicans, I know we they're just a church that left ACNA to go back to the Episcopal Church. Huh. Uh, and so for me, I'm pretty willing to say, yeah, we have heterodox guys in our communion and we should get rid of them as soon as we can. And I think there's a source because why? Well, because I think doctrine is really important. I think what we don't have is this, this, this sort of almost reverse clericalism where we can't possibly admit that there are theological liberals in our communion. Um, and I think like a lot of Anglicans would be like conservative Anglicans are like, yep, they're here and it's bad. And I wish we could get rid of them. Huh. Why? Well, because it's really bad to have, bad doctrine, I think there's a sort of almost psycho-emotional obfuscation that goes on. I don't know the Lutheran communion well enough, but I would assume this happens in the LCMS, where you've got a diehard LCMSer. Um, well, maybe you have both brands in the LCMS. I mean, there might be guys who are like, yep, there's liberals here. We got to get rid of them. And then you could have the company man who's like, no, we're all really theologically conservative, even though we have beliefs on other things. I think that when Anglicans think about doctrine, they think about practice a lot rather than just sort of the cognitive aspect of doctrine. Um, and so I think Mason's actually probably most useful for ACNA right now 
than either other major conservative communion. Because we really do sort of have the circumstances on the ground that mirror the fundamentalist modernist country. Yeah. There, there are real actual theological, not just liberals, but like heterodox people in our communion. So I think if anything, Machen would be most useful to, to us. He, he draws like a, a dark line where I think we know there's a dark line. Um, and I think maybe other, you know, reformed denominations downstream from the fundamentalist modernist controversy, they kind of want to think that, okay, well, we got it handled there. And so there's, there's no other real problems we need to win it. Obviously there are, there are theological liberals in every major Protestant group. Um, that's just that I think that's one of the natures of Protestantism. It's harder to get rid of bad people fast. Um, or I say bad people, bad, bad, bad theological actors. So one of the backgrounds um, or something in the background of Machen writing this book was um, long-term American Presbyterian debates about subscription, which go back to the Synod of Philadelphia, uh, 1729, an adopting act where the minister said, we're going to receive and adopt the Westminster Confession. And that's the beginning of a of a subscription process that remains relatively unchanged. But the way that people re re read that adopting act does get into then what is is required in subscription. But this might be useful just to say to, to ask, what is the nature of Lutheran and Anglican subscription? I mean, is there how 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 tight is it? What is the language tight, but the practice is not as tight? Um, yeah, in, in, in the LCMS, it's, it's I mean, to, to use your vocabulary, I, I would say it's very tight. Um, and, 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 and therefore, in some respects, scandalizes other, other communions. So the, the language that we use, I won't, I won't bore our audience with the technical Latin terms, but, but we say that we uh, accept the, the, the Book of Concord, the, the Lutheran Confessions, um, because they are uh, a, a faithful summary of the doctrine of Scripture. Whereas, um, you know, the, the larger Lutheran body in America, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the liberal Lutheran body, uh, uses the language of accepting those confessions insofar as. Hmm. So that, that just leaves a, a, a huge door open for, for every member of that body to say, well, yeah, of course I accept the Lutheran confessions, except those parts that I don't. Um, and, and yet you, you can't really get away with that in the LCMS. Um, and it, I mean, it, it does, let's be honest, in the 21st century, it, it sounds a little bit scandalous and a little bit uh, close-minded to say, yep, these, these writings from the 16th century um, and, and earlier, it includes the Nicene Creed and the Apostles and the Athanasian Creeds, uh, but, but we accept these um, as being and because they are an accurate um, precy of, of the doctrine of Scripture. Um, and, and therefore, they serve as a kind of shorthand for us mm -hmm. what about anglicans miles so i think it would it really i mean this is the blessing and curse of our polity in that some bishops are absolutely fantastic in that they enforce uh, i think real conformity to the ordinals and uh, to the formularies and, and um some don't 
I, I, this is, I think this is the, so it's, it's, I think, you know, Anglicans are confessional and right. Um, hmm. like, uh, so they're confessional plus, and that's, it can be a blessing or a curse. I mean, I, one of the things I, I think is pretty impressive is that a bishop is able to deal pretty swiftly with actual liberals in his diocese in a way that even a presbytery or a consistory um, or maybe the synodical government uh, of the LCMS can't. So, I mean, I know we've had a couple cases where something's gone on in our, I mean, within a week, our bishops dealt with it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and so, I mean, the good news is that it doesn't have the chance to kind of percolate into a controversy. Um, something is, is happening, uh, you know, the bishop gets on the phone and uh, I, I think I've heard stories, sometimes it's a text, right? He knows something. <laughs> text, and you know, guy gets the fear of God put him in him. Um, I think that the the scarier, I mean, Corey's point about how scandalous the Lutheran, I think rigidity is is a fair term. Rigidity on conformity is, I think that's completely admirable, and I think that's actually something good. I mean, I, I know there's this cartoon of the mean LCMSer who wants to maintain close communion. Well, the, the benefit of that, of course, is like everybody knows where everybody's at. And I think that perhaps something that it would be great for Anglicans to think about is we should be a little bit scared of our bishops. Our bishops should maybe be meaner in our minds um, than we want. <laughs> uh, because a mean bishop, and I'm using air quotes here, mean, my bishop's very firm, but he's a, he's a wonderful man of God. Um, you, you know, I mean, no one kind of, is there's no ambiguity about where he's at and or how he rules his diocese. So I think in some ways, Machen was the the original, at least for Anglophone Protestants, right? Like in some ways, he's the original mean guy, right? right? right. He's the original guy who says, no, this is a black line and has to be maintained. Um, and I, I think that's, that's his greatest legacy. And I think that's the legacy if, he can offer English. It's a good one. I mean, we, we have to maintain our black lines. Um, and Mason did that well. And so I think if anything, our communion is the most ready for a Mason esque figure or a Mason esque telos today. I mean, we are definitely, um, the most in need of it. And again, that's, that sounds scandalous, especially to people who are attracted to the Latunians to Latunarian spirit of, of Anglicanism, which there's always been, but there's also sort of an equal opposite push against that. Um, and so, yeah, I think Mason, Mason's legacy for at least Anglicans is one that is probably hopefully developing now. Um, well, I, we should start to wrap up here, but I, I do want to say probably, that I should acknowledge maybe at least for in my own thinking that um, Machen is probably responsible for this podcast in the sense that it's uh, it's, it's a paleo Protestant podcast, but it's also big part of what that means is being a confessional Protestant, meaning that you hold to the confessions of the Reformation era, you're in a communion that that does so. And I mean, this is relevant to the book because he does spend several 
important section of a, of a chapter on the church in Christianity and liberalism where he's talking about subscription and the importance of creeds. And do- he's been leading up to that by defending the importance of doctrine. But when I was writing about Machen in the 80s, um, my book came out in 1994. But the Protestant world, we talked about this before in previous episodes, but the Protestant world was divided up between evangelicals and mainline and then okay oh they're the fundamentalists that don't fit that they really should be evangelical but but they're not nice enough to be evangelical but those are you have these two main parties in american protestantism white american protestantism you know and the lutherans i could well understand why that they didn't care for that even though martin marty who was a prominent lutheran and prominent church historian kind of gave us those categories. Um, but I mean, I thought of Machen as trying to do something different by arguing the way he did about in the Presbyterian controversy, trying to do something that was specifically Presbyterian and not merely conservative and evangelical uh, over against liberalism. Um, and that eventually inspired a book I wrote, I can't remember what date, about 10 years later or so, Lost Soul of American Protestantism, where I I devoted a chapter in there to Lutherans. I would have liked to include, have included Episcopalians, and I did a little bit in one of the chapters with some 19th century Episcopal developments, but, um, but I know some Lutherans, LCMS folks, have, have read that book and appreciated kind of being included in an effort to try to recover confessional Protestantism I mean, I do have a chapter chapter on the Dutch Reformed, on Presbyterians, and on Missouri Synod, uh, or at least nineteenth-century Lutheran developments. And um, but it, you know, I I think it's still a category worth uh, pursuing and considering confessional Protestantism. Um, it's a hard thing to say. Let's form a confessional Protestant organization that's going to unite all of these different communions into some kind of what fellowship not really because we can't we can't celebrate the sacraments together in some ways we can't do missions together i mean if we just had a conference and we came and heard papers and shared meals that might be one thing but it's hard to get confessional protestants together the way it's it is easy to get liberal protestants or evangelicals together because they're not bound by those those confessions or creeds the way that these other groups are but you know, part of my my uh, purpose in doing this too was to remind historians who study American Protestantism that there are these other groups, and you can't just sort of include them in your story by shoehorning them into the category of evangelical. Because, as I've said, I think somewhere, you know, if I'm an evangelical, then I'm in in the same camp with Oral Roberts. How do you put Pentecostals and Presbyterians together in the same boat? Um, And I don't know how much Lutherans try to get, uh, people try to put Lutherans in an evangelical mold, even though they're they're the only church that really can claim the original word evangelical. Um, So anyway. I think Gallup at one point was including the LCMS and Wells in the term. Evangelical, and what and what you yep. realize is so much of this polling is really has 
to do with the way Christian groups vote in elections. And I mean, it really is this set kind of socio-political definers that are being sort of retroactively attached to religion. I mean, right. I mean, imagine how much further a Wells person is from Oral Roberts. Um, you know, I, <laughs> for our Wells listeners, that's something I would admire about you. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I think they're able to share podcast communion with us, um, and so I would assume that's the case. So, well, any any other concluding thoughts or uh, comments before we wrap this up? No, have they published a, a, a new edition, a hundredth anniversary edition of Christianity and Liberalism? There are two. Two coming out. Westminster Seminary has a press, Westminster Seminary Press, which I sometimes wonder about the wisdom of starting a new publishing endeavor. And I can't re- remember who the other one is. Maybe uh, it could be Crossway, but it could be Ligonier. Huh. Um, so those are coming out. Um, Erdman's has always kept it in print as well, though. Um I think the most recent imprint from Erdman's is something like 2009. Carl Truman wrote the preface or the foreword. And uh, of course, I was greatly frustrated that they didn't ask me. But anyway, <laughs> that, that is my relationship with Dr. Truman. So, <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap it up. Thanks for doing this. And we'll be back soon to talk about some really intriguing thoughts that Dr. Smith, Miles Smith has about sociology, but that'll that'll be coming in a few weeks, God willing. All right, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. See you.